All right, well, good morning. You guys ready? I'm ready. We got another pretty big chunk of scripture to, to cover today. And so, hey, I wanted to start off with this day. One, my name's JT. If you don't know me, I'm one of the pastors here at Freshwater. So thankful that you're here. If I didn't get to meet you before the service, please come find me. I would love to meet you. The other thing is I had a really good conversation the other day and somebody asked, was kind of asking really well, hey, why are we covering bigger portions of scripture in John than we normally do? Have you noticed that? No, like, no, some people notice somebody, and I thought, that's a really good question. So um, just so you know, like, like when we went through the book of Romans, sometimes I'd cover, cover two verses, or Brandon would cover four verses. And so I, I thought it was interesting to tell, because I, I think it kind of informs the way that we approach things. Um, when I was preparing for the Gospel of John, um, I read from one of the a theologians that I just absolutely love, named D.A. Carson. If there's a theologian, I would trust you to read D.A. DA Carson's one of them, right? He said, John is one of the most Christ-centered books in the Bible. You've heard me say that before, right? It's all about Jesus. It's about knowing and believing in Jesus. And John wants to absolutely convince those listening to it that that's what this book is about. Um, but he also said, that's almost the only thing this book is about. Have you noticed that? All of the stories, his healings, his miracles, everything points back to who Jesus is again and again and again. And so he said, hey, if you take it in smaller chunks like you did other books, um, by, by, for a lot of pastors, for a lot of churches, by the time you get to chapter 12, 13, or 14, if you're covering little verses at, um, every time, then um, your, your congregation and, and pastor might get a little bit exhausted. Now, do we ever get exhausted of hearing the gospel? No, right? And so, like, we want to be careful that way. We can spend so much time in just two or three verses of John. But, but D.A. Carson, who's been a pastor most of his life, has, has discipled lots of other pastors, said, hey, this is a bigger story about knowing and believe Jesus that says the same thing again and again. So take the stories as a whole. Don't try to take the stories about Jesus like with the blind man or with the healing, or even today when he's having one conversation with all of the Jews and the Pharisees. Take, take, take some of the stories as a whole and then help people understand the big picture. And then when you get to an epistle, you can go back to preaching your two or three verses, right? I just thought that was interesting. And I thought you guys might want to know that. Does, does that make sense? So that's why we're taking, we don't normally take 20 verses at a time. Um, like, I don't like to do that because it's actually easier to, for, for me, I think Brandon would agree, to take five verses at a time. That's easier. Um, but we wanted to kind of show you the big picture, the big story of Jesus, so that what John wanted us to grasp, the big picture of Jesus being our Messiah, and so that we would know and believe. So I just thought I'd throw that out there. So throw that out there. And I want to say, too, thank you for everybody coming out yesterday that helped out of the land. I think Eric Shelton said this the last time we did this. There's something about being out there and being together and working for a purpose and a vision together. There's just, it's not just work. There's something about it. And, uh, and then to see some of our people walking around meeting our neighbors, it was just a really fun day. I never think the work days are going to be fun days. I mean, they're fine, uh, but they always end up actually being fun. So thank you, Larry. Thank you, Ethan, for planning everything. Thank you for everybody that came out. All right, so let's jump in today. Um, about two and a half years ago, if you haven't been with us, the principal of Williams, the school that we're in right now, Miss Webb took another job. And I'll be honest, we were kind of devastated by that because Miss Webb had always been fully on board with what we were trying to do. From the first time, if you've heard me tell the story before, the first time we met, um, I, told, I was told I'd got five minutes with her, and we ended up praying together and crying together by the, after we talked for about an hour, hour and a half. That's how that first meeting went. And from that point on, she, man, she was on board with us trying to love the community and the school, and hey, even trying to bring God's love and doing things for the glory of God. She was on board, but then she left, and Miss Dessa came. And Miss Dessa, if you don't know her very well, the principal now, is the opposite of Miss Webb in virtually every way. 
Like, right, Rhonda? Not necessarily good or bad. They're just opposite. And I could tell from the start that she was a little bit skeptical about us. Not against us. Not against us. She was skeptical. And I know Miss Webb. I know some of the teachers. I know people from even from Springfield Public Schools that told her about Freshwater because she told me so. But, but for the first six months or so, I could just tell that she wasn't fully on board. But over time, it changed. From about the six-month mark to about the year mark, our relationship grew and grew. Um, and, and by the end of the, about a year, by that time, she started calling us more. She started involving us way more. She even started calling Springfield Public Schools on our behalf when we got hung up on stuff to try to make sure it happened for us so that we could love the school and love the community well. She started making sure that we could use the buildings for things that we didn't really get to use it for the year before when she was. So man, she, by the end of that, like she was fully on board too. And now she's fully on board. And you've heard me tell the story so much so when I sat down with her a year and a half and I said, hey, if we wanted to come back to Williams, what would you think? She was like, absolutely, we would love to have you back. No hesitation, absolutely, we'd love to have you back. So what happened? She, what happened was she heard who we said we are. She, she heard about the things that we wanted to accomplish. She heard us make promises about what we wanted to do. But to her, because she wasn't Miss Webb, but to her, they were just words. It, t- it took her seeing us match our words with our actions, our works, for her to actually see the truth, which is basically the thing that just Corey just said, right? And we didn't plan that. Before the service, she said, we just got to gotta let our actions match our words. I'm like, whoa, <laughs> that's what I'm preaching on today. That's not really what I'm preaching on today. I'm preaching on who Jesus is today, but it, it, it's going to play in. Our actions matched our words, and now Miss Webb and Mrs. Hoff and a lot of the staff here are just absolute believers in what we're trying to do. So church, I want to ask you really quick before we jump into the passage, what do your actions, what do your works say about Christ? Not, not, first of all, hear me. No, not what do they say about you primarily. What do they say about Christ? And what do they say about Christ's work in you and through you? Because you might be willing to tell other people about Jesus, which I know some of us are intimidated by. You might be able to kind of bring him up. You might even talk about God's promises. But do your works, listen, bear witness about the truth of who he is, the truth that he is the Savior of the world. And so if you, if you first time today or you haven't been with us for a while, we're walking through the Gospel of John. And, and you know, it's hard in the Gospel of John. I don't know if you picked up on this already, but it's hard in the Gospel of John to always apply it to our lives. Because listen, I want you to hear something. The Gospel of John is not about you, right? Have you noticed that? Like even in the Gospel of Matthew, you walk through the Beatitudes, or you walk through the Sermon on the Mount. There's lots of stuff about what we should be doing. Have you noticed John almost never talks about what we should be doing? Have you picked up on that? It's about Jesus all of the time. And so in the Gospel of John, you have to be really careful about pl- applying what the Gospel of John is saying and saying, that, well, this is what I'm supposed to do because the Gospel is not about you. It's about Jesus and you're not Jesus. Do you see how that gets kind of complicated in a church setting? So we have to be laser focused on who Jesus is as we walk through the Gospel of John because John is laser focused on Jesus through the Gospel of John. You know what word's coming next? But... If we're focused on Jesus, Jesus also leaves us as, he goes, as we go through the Gospel of John, Jesus leaves us amazing examples to follow. 
So I think we can look at his life and we gotta be focused on him, him first, not us first, him first. But we look at the pattern of his life and what he did. And I think we can, some, at least in some ways, apply it to our lives. Because listen, Romans 8 says that we have the spirit of Christ in us, which is the Holy Spirit, but his spirit. Uh, Romans 8 also says that we're being conformed into the image of Christ. And so Christ so often leaves us powerful examples to follow. And I think this is one of those texts, a text that we have to be first and foremost, be focused on Jesus and who he is. But if we look at his example to follow, he leaves us an incredible thing, an incredible example. And so an example that I hope today, by the end, we're going to ask ourselves, does the evidence and works of my life bear witness about the truth of who he is? And so again, for those that are new, this is typically where I'll do a little bit of recap to catch you up because I don't want you to feel like you're left behind. But we're kind of lucky today because Jesus is going to do the recap. Jesus kind of just tells the things that he's been talking about lately and catches us up to where he's been. So let's jump back into John 10, and we're going to read verses 22 through 30. John 10, 22 through 30. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter. And Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they, and they will never perish." and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So it says it was winter, and Jesus is walking through the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. That's a, that's a part of the temple. And it says it was the Feast of Dedication. Um, I actually had to look into the Feast of Dedication. At the top of my head, I was like, oh, what's the Feast of Dedication? Um, and the reason it was is interesting, it's different, is because it wasn't a feast instituted by God. So again, if you've been walking through us, the, the Feast of the Tabernacles and the Passover, those were all feasts instituted by God through the law or through whatever else to remember something. But this was a feast instituted by the Jews. And it was a feast that they created because um, about 200 years before, a, a Syrian army and a Syrian leader came in. They, they captured a lot of, of Israel, captured a lot of um, Jerusalem in particular, and they took over the temple and then just absolutely desecrated it. Like just desecrated it. Well, then a, a group of people led by a, a man named Judas Maccabeus, also known as Judas the Hammer. How awesome is that? Like, like if you want to call me JT the Hammer, that's okay, because that just sounds awesome. Like, I mean, is that not the coolest name ever? Judas the Hammer. Um, he took back the temple, defeated their enemy, and then they consecrated the temple once again. They cleaned it up. They dedicated all the stuff that God commands in the law back to the Lord, did all the things there, but the bread of presence and everything else, and, and they consecrated it once again back to the Lord. Do you know what? This feast is known by another name. Hanukkah. Right? Hanukkah. So what's kind of crazy about this feast and the way John's using this feast is when John brings up the name of a feast, it's Every time and so far, and John, it's pointing to something he's about to say, right? There's a significance to it. So he brings up the Feast of Dedication again. And what's crazy about this is even though this is not a God-ordained feast, like the Feast of Tabernacles, like the Passover, we have seen before how it points to Christ, and so does this one. So does this one. Because in verse, was it verse 36, what we just read, verse 36, Jesus says that the Father consecrated me and sent me. 
In the same way, the Feast of Dedication was about the consecrating of the God's temple, where God's presence dwells on earth. And now Jesus is the Emmanuel. You know what? Emmanuel means God with us, God among us. And so Jesus is the one who has been consecrated by the Father and sent by the Father to be the true temple. That's why we don't need the temple anymore, because Jesus is the temple. He is the consecrated one. He is the place where we come into God's presence through the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the answer to even this John is telling us he is the answer to even this feast. All of it is pointing to Jesus as Messiah. The whole book of John is pointing to Jesus as the Messiah. So, while Jesus is in the temple during this time of the feast, which he ends up being the answer to, the Jews finally just ask him plainly. It literally says plainly. Like, just tell us plainly, who are you? Don't leave us in suspense any longer. You know, in the Greek, if you read, don't leave us in suspense, like we might even use that phrasing, in, in the Greek, that has the implication of stop annoying us. Stop annoying us. So like talking around it, just tell us plainly. This is a hostile crowd, right? That, don't, that's, that word suspense is a hostile word. So this is a hostile um, crowd from the beginning. But Jesus doesn't tell them exactly who he is. Why? Well, we've talked about it before. There's so much baggage attached to that word Christ, to that word Messiah. And that's not the only reason that Jesus is waiting, right? He said, my time has not come yet. He said that again and again, right? But there's so much baggage, right? At this time, the Jews felt like the Messiah, the the Christ was going to be a political figure, a political figure that was going to come set them free from their oppression, not from sin and Satan and death, but from the world, from Rome, from all of their enemies and would set them up to rule. And so Jesus knows if I throw this out there, They're going to hear it wrong. They're not going to be able to process my words through my actual actions, and they're going to hear it wrong. Which, by the way, in this this passage, we can tell he's totally right, because is that not exactly what, when TJ read, is that not exactly what plays out? They're not hearing Christ for who he actually is, because his words for them are getting in the way. And that title would get in the way. So Jesus doesn't state it plainly, really. He does the next best thing to stating it plainly. He, He basically says, Listen, what I've already told you and what I've already done makes it extremely clear. Or as it says in the text, or I told you, but you do not believe. And this is where we're going to get a little recap about where we've been. Jesus says, he tells us what he has said before, what he has done before. And so he more or less gives us three things that he's he's said and done that makes it clear who he is in the the text. One, he says, I do my father's will and and the works and what I do bears witness about about." about who I am. My works bear witness about who I am. We're going to get into that more as we go through this, right? So that's the first one. I do my Father's will and my works bear witness that he is doing those works through me too. Jesus tells them that the Father and I are one. Jesus has shown them that this this means not only does he do the Father's will, which he has stated again and again, but that he has the Father's authority. Authority over creation as, as he literally heals people, as he undoes the curse of sin and heals people. He has a authority over the law where she's, he's showing like, I am the Lord of the Sabbath, that he has Lord over the Sabbath, showing he has authority over the God-given law. He says, I have authority on earth to forgive sin. Like they wanted to stone him for that one. Only God can forgive sin. But he says, I have authority to forgive sin. And this goes so far next week as we start chapter 11, Jesus is going to show them he has authority even over life and death as he raises someone from the dead. So by Jesus claiming and showing that he has authority only God has, he's declaring to them pretty clearly exactly who he is. And we're going to see that they understand that in a second. And then the third way he's made it clear who he is, Jesus is claiming power over eternal life. 
that no one can come to the Father except through him, that he alone is the Son of Man, that he is the Word of God, that he is the bread of life, that he is the light of life, that he alone is the Good Shepherd, which is the context for today. And so as we've already seen in this book, all of those titles carry some biblical significance about the Christ, about the Messiah, about the great prophet, about who's going to come to rescue them. So, as this hostile crowd gathers... Not only is he reminding them of all of the things that he has claimed, he then puts the nail in the coffin. If they weren't hostile before, he puts the nail in the coffin and he says to all of them, and you don't get this. You don't get this because I am the great shepherd and I lead my people and they hear my voice and they follow me and and they follow me and I give them eternal life. And not only do I give them eternal life, but they are held onto my, by my Father, the greatest of all. He holds onto them, and nothing can take that away from them because my Father is holding onto them. But you wouldn't know that because you're not a part of God's kingdom. Needless to say, that didn't go over very, very well, right? Didn't go over very well. If we wonder whether or not they're getting the point, they said, tell us plainly, then Jesus says all this. What, if you're wondering whether they got the point, in the next verse we're going to read in a second, they pick up stones to try to kill him for blasphemy. They know exactly what Jesus is saying. He's not only claiming to be the Christ, he's, pl- he's claiming to be God, and they want to kill him for it. Now, before we move on, I want you to hear something. In the passage, Jesus is mainly talking to people who don't believe in him, right? He's talking to Jewish people who are against him, who don't believe in him. But for the most part, that's not the case in this room, right? We're here together, most of us at least, as believers, gathered together to worship our Savior. So I want you to hear something before we move on. For those of you that are His sheep, know that you are His sheep, that have heard His voice and believed, hear me, nothing can snatch you out of His hand. For it is His Father who is greater than all, all who is holding on to you. Church, we have to live in that truth. And I don't know that most of us do. I think for, for even for me, sometimes it's hard to live in that truth that, that we have eternal life, that is guaranteed by the, the Father. It, we, we've, we must, church, live in the beautiful light of that. We just got to. Listen, your failure or your apathy or your low moments or your past or your lack of performance cannot pull you out of the Father's hand. And if you come from a background that, that, that you didn't learn it that way, I want you to take passages like this and really, really study it. We can still be brothers and sisters in Christ, but I'm really passionate about this because so much confidence in the Lord and who He has created you to be comes from believing this and knowing this and believing when Christ says this, nothing can take you out of my Father's hand. Nothing. He's not here today, but if you need a reminder of this, if you want to be encouraged by this, go read what Matt Reynolds always says is the greatest chapter in the Bible, Romans 8. Romans 8, where it talks about who God is, who Christ is, who you are in him. And it says that nothing, nothing in all creation, nothing on heaven and on earth can snatch you out of the Father's hands. Nothing can separate you from God's love. Nothing. Do you know how much hope, how much joy, how much confidence in Christ comes from knowing and truly believing in that and living in that by abiding in that all of the time? It's called living in the light of eternity. And it feels to me that modern Christianity, us as modern Christians, have a really hard time with this. And I think, man, we've got to capture this, that Jesus has done 
all that needs to be done. Listen, he's already done all that needs to be done for you to have this, for you to have eternal life. And, and by living in this, by living for his glory, living in the truth of this, you will have an inheritance and rewards waiting for you in eternity that cannot be taken away. That cannot be taken away. Church, live in the light of that. Your Father in Christ has already given it to you and has sealed you to Him forever. Let, let church, let that motivate you. Let that encourage you on, on the hard days. Let that encourage you. Let that give you hope that, this, that we know this life isn't easy, but Christ is holding on to you. If you are a believer, live in the, just live in the eternal light of that. Hold on to that every day. All right. But that's not really the point Jesus is making. It's one of the points he made last week in our chapter last week. He's reminding them of that this week. But these Jews, back to the point, are not his sheep. They can't see this through a heavenly lens. So instead of embracing the joy of their good shepherd who gives eternal life and seals them to him forever, and so they want to kill him. Look at verse 31. Chapter 10, verse 31. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Okay, let's stop there for a second. Now, I don't know about you, but just like reading that, it, it seems pretty obvious that they want to stone Jesus for what he's just said, for who he says he is, right? That, that's why they want to stone him rather than the works that he's done. They're bringing up what he just said, yet when they try to stone him, Jesus says, for what good work are you going to stone me? And understand, I mean, to me, understandably, they answer, it's not for the work that, the works that you've done that we're going to stone you, but that you, a man, are making yourself God. Now, I don't know about you, but like just an initial reading, if you read this quick, it, it seems like kind of a strange response from Christ when he knows they're challenging him on what he said and not what he did. It seems like a strange response for him to turn it to that until we read the rest and understand the rest of the passage. And then I think we're going to understand what Christ is trying to accomplish here when he kind of turns it from what he said to his works. And with that, keep reading in verse 34. Chapter 10, verse 34. Jesus answered them, it is, not, is it not written in your law? I said, I said you are gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the son of God? If I'm not doing the works of my father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. All right. To understand this one, because this, this has got some weird language in it, if you've never heard it before. Um, to understand this one, we have to figure out what the heck Jesus is talking about when he says, I said you are God's. Weird response, right? At least in part. I said you were God. This, so let's jump into it. This is a direct quote from Psalm 82. Psalm 82, 6 and 7. I want you to see the, kind of the whole passage. Can we get it up there? 
Here it is. I said you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Now, there's a lot of debate on what that means. There's also debate on what Jesus Christ was saying in this passage, right? But there's a lot of debate on what that means. That's from the Old Testament. So here's what I want to tell you what the, the, the kind of the two main things that, as I studied, that I found. There's, there's kind of two main camps, the, the biggest ones. There's lots of camps, but there's two main camps. Um, here's the first one. Some think that the lowercase g, not capital G gods, but lowercase g gods, or the sons described in Psalm 82, here where the judges, the rulers, the priests over Israel, who God gave the job to lead Israel, and then they failed in their duties because they made it about themselves. They made it about their own selfishness. They made it about them instead of leading the people. And God says, all of you are going to fall for not leading my people well. That's one. Here's the second one. And I actually lean towards this one. Um, others think that the, the sons, the, the lowercase g gods, and this is talking about the, Jew, the Jewish people in the time of the Exodus when God gave the law. Right? That, that was the time when the law came. Right? I said, you are God's most high. All of you, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. And so what, it, what, it, what it, it's referencing is that during that time, God gave them the law. Right? He gave them who he is. And in and, and and Exodus, do you guys remember what he called his people? He called them many things, but one of the things he called them was my firstborn sons. Right? So he refers to Israel, the Jewish people in the time of the Exodus, as my sons. Sons that are meant to be a reflection of their father, of their God. So lowercase g is not about them being any kind, anyone being any kind of heavenly being, but about being the sons of God who reflect the image of their God. Right? And so he gave them the law. He gave them everything he, they needed as their sons. And when it came time for them then to enter the promised land, they turned against God. They didn't have faith in God. They gave into their fear. And so they didn't get to go in the promised land. So everyone in that generation fell. They were princes, like they were God's people, but they fell because they did not have faith in God. And so that generation all died. And, and when the next generation rose up, they're the ones that led God's people into the promised land. They, so it's really, in the end, just referring to the Jewish people, particularly in the time of the Exodus. So here's the thing. People debate and debate and debate on exactly who God is referencing when he calls them lowercase g's and sons. And I, I know I don't do this a ton, but when I need to do it, I'll do it. I'm not exactly positive on which one's right. I told you I lean towards the second one. I think that in the context of Psalms, that's what it's talking about. But hear me. Here's the, here's the good thing for us today. Um, it's not the point that Jesus is trying to make anyway, us to know exactly what this is. Because here's the thing. Typically, Virtually every single time when Jesus quotes an Old Testament passage, he's using it to make a point about who God is or who he is. Virtually, I would have said maybe before I really studied this, I would have said every time. But if you look in this, I, I don't think that's actually what he's doing. He's not using this passage to point directly to who he is. He's using this passage to get them to think, to stop and think. And here's what I mean. Mob mentality in this moment has taken over. If you don't see it in the passage, hear me. They're ready to kill Jesus. Do you know the problem with that is? They are ruled by Rome. They're not allowed to execute anyone. So if mob mentality takes over and they execute Jesus because they think he is speaking blasphemy, they're going to be under Roman law. They all could be risking their own lives if they kill Jesus Christ right here. They could be executed for executing him. They have no right under Roman law to do this. And so normally when this would happen, Jesus just steps away. Do you remember all the times Jesus just stepped away? Brandon gets really hung up on it, and I love it, right? When he's like, 
Like he's in the middle of a crowd and everybody's there and then he's just gone. How does that happen? I don't know how that happens. It's about to happen again. He just miraculously is gone. But this time he doesn't slip away right when this happens. He says something first. He says this thing and he quotes this passage and he basically says, if God calls his own people, whoever his people, but almost everybody agrees he's referring to the Jewish people in some way, right? So if he calls his own people, gods and sons, why do you want to kill me for saying I am the son of God? Basically saying God's already using that language. If God uses language like this, why can't I use this language about myself? Now, here's the crazy thing. Jesus knows the people are getting hung up on his words because they think he's claiming to be God. And they're right. That's exactly what he's doing. So why is Jesus saying this? Well, here's what I believe. Here's what I, I believe Jesus is doing. It's because he wants them to stop getting hung up on the words and look at the evidence. Stop getting hung up. Like, like the title of Messiah and Christ, stop getting hung up on what you think this is supposed to be and look at the evidence of my life. Remember how I said claiming the, the title of Messiah is going to mess them up? I think that's what's happening here. Well, Jesus' words had distracted them. They had blinded them to the evidence of what Jesus was doing because of what he was saying. So he says this thing to help them maybe stop just stop for a second and think. And in that pause, he says, look at my works. You're focused on my words, but look at my works. Look at what I do. They have seen him heal a man who couldn't walk for decades. They have seen him heal a man that was born, born blind. They have heard, everyone's heard about this time. They've all heard about how Jesus fed 5,000 with just a couple fish and a few loaves of bread, right? They've heard about his miraculous. They, they have watched it. Like, I think Brandon might, might call this a miracle. I don't know. They, have, they know that the temple guards are supposed to arrest Jesus. They've been commanded to arrest Jesus for like six months now. It's probably been at least six months. Yet Jesus is walking openly through the temple. He's not hiding. People are gathered around him, challenging. But the temple guards still haven't arrested him. That's crazy. The leaders of Jerusalem say arrest him and the temple guards won't do it because they've never heard a man speak like this. That's insane. They've seen this. They have seen Jesus love the poor and help the needy and love the outcast and restore the broken. They've seen all of this. They know all of it and they can't get, a, get past his potential title. They can't get past his words. So Jesus is saying, hey, listen, look at the evidence of my life. Could all my words truly be false if the Father has done all of these things through me? Look at what I've done and know that the Father truly is in me and I am in Him. It's a pretty good argument, isn't it? It's a really good argument because Christ always has the best arguments. He's Christ. But even though all of that's true, they still refuse to see it. So they try to get him arrested. And once again, Jesus miraculously slips, the, slips away in a crowd of Jewish people. I said in the beginning, I'm going to say it one more time, we have to be careful about applying what Jesus is doing and who he is and what he's saying to our own lives. Because again, the story isn't about us. It's about the truth, the divinity. It's about the glory of Jesus Christ. About knowing and believing. John's told us that's what this book is about. 
And it's what we want to focus on. It's what I want you to focus on. But I also think Christ leaves us an amazing example here for us to follow, doesn't he? Because here's the thing, church. I know that I, I, I know, I believe that most of you want to be people who share the gospel, right? Who tell people about the truth of who Jesus Christ is, what he has done, and what he's going to continue to do for those who believe. I think most of you want to do that, even though you might be scared or intimidated or you don't feel fully equipped. But I, I, I think almost every person in this room, particularly if you've been here for a while, want to do that. You want God to use you in that. So let me just tell you two ways I think Christ leaves us an amazing example of how we can be more effective at this, be more effective at being disciples of Christ, because that's what this is about, like us following Christ for who He is and being His disciples, but being disciples who make disciples. How we can be more effective at that by following Christ's example here. Here's the first one. You need to remember Christ's words here. You need to remember what John is trying to get us to wrap our minds around and what Jesus Christ said, said here, because you know what? Sometimes life is hard, right? And, and sometimes life is incredibly distracting, Sometimes sin just absolutely derails us. And sometimes life can just be so disheartening, even cause us to doubt. Even doubts creep in. And listen, I know that. I get that. We all go through all of those different things, all the different things that this world and life tries to throw at us, all the things, honestly, that they're throwing at Christ, totally unfair things so often. And it's on those days that, that sometimes knowing up here all of those truths like holding on to those truths on those days, sometimes that's enough, right? Remembering and holding on, it, it's enough. And, it, and in the end, it truly is enough because the Holy Spirit's with you. But, but and sometimes it, it feels like enough, but sometimes there's those days simply knowing the truth, having the right answers doesn't feel like enough. Have you ever been there? When you want to get away from your apathy, you want to get away from your sin, you want to do more for Christ, you want to live more for Him, but, but just knowing what you're supposed to do, just knowing who Christ is, doesn't, even though it is, it doesn't feel like enough on that day. It's on those days I want you to stop. And yes, I, I want you to do this. I want, yes, I want you to remember what Jesus Christ says. Yes, amen. I want you to hold on to the truths of the Bible for that is your anchor. That is your foundation. That is the cornerstone. It all has to come from that. It must come from that because this book is about Jesus, not about you. But on that day when the truth doesn't feel like it's enough, I want you to take time and remember what he's actually done. What he's actually done, listen, for you. I want you to remember not only that he died for you, but he rose from the dead for you so that you could have life in him. That's the most important thing I want you to remember and hold on to and process it and what that means in your life. But also, I want you to remember the very real works that Christ has done in your life. I want you to remember the times that you were in need and God provided for you. How quickly do we forget those things? Javi, is this not a conversation you and I have all the time? About how we forget how we were in need and then God provided for us? We forget those things. And those times when you struggle, I want you to remember that. I, I want you to remember the time when you were desperately discouraged and then God answered your prayer. Because sometimes God's answer to prayer is wait, 
He just has this weight and we need that. And sometimes the answer is no, because he loves us. But sometimes God answers prayer in miraculous ways, doesn't he? Just a little reminder of, I've got you, I'm with you. But how quickly do we forget that? Like God's literally answered our prayers and we've seen him work. But in this moment, when, he does, when the truth doesn't feel like enough, I, I forget. I want you to remember, maybe, maybe write them down. I want you to remember that miraculous thing that God did for you or someone that you love. Because almost every Christian has that story, right? This person was healed or this thing happened or it was provided for in this way or this, this not, not just a small thing, but a pretty big thing happened. And God, like as Christians always like to say, God showed up as, as if he wasn't there in the first place, right? But like God came and showed us who he is and did the miraculous thing, yet we forget. And listen, I, we all understand that, don't we? In times of suffering and hurting and pain, when things aren't going the way, it's hard to remember these things because we just want suffering to end. And listen, there's nothing wrong with you wanting your suffering to end. No, none of us wants to suffer. Yet it's in those moments when we're suffering, when things are difficult, when we don't understand that God will refine, refine us. Man, as a church, have you not felt like we're being refined the last year and a half? Yet I had a conversation with someone this morning that like so many people in our church are stepping up and saying, I'll help lead. I'll help do this thing. I'll, I'll help be a part of this. Why? Because in the last year they've been refined and they realized I can be a part of making this family stronger. I've been sitting on the sideline yet through this refining process, I know, I know I need to give more of my life for the glory of Jesus Christ and for his body because it'll be good for me. But more importantly, it's going to give him glory and build up his body. This is what God does. Yet we forget we forget he's already done everything that we need. And so we need to remember, yes, his words, but also what he's done. Remember those times when faith in Jesus Christ felt so alive, so real, so exciting, so much joy. We all ride the wave of the highs and the lows, don't we? It's okay, Christian. Some days you are on fire from the Lord, and some days he feels so far away. Read the book of Psalms. You are not alone. Read Jeremiah. You are not alone in that. His prophets, his kings felt that way. And it's on those days we've got to remember that God has always been faithful. And in the midst of this time when I don't understand or I'm suffering or I'm struggling, he remembers me. He is there. I need to remember him for who he is and for what he has done. Because God wants you to know him, believe, and trust. And then I want you to remember no matter what happens, he has given you eternal life. No matter how hard it gets, you know, you know, Christian, that he is waiting for you with joys and pleasures forevermore. That is promised to you in the low times. That, we hold on to that. Like I have an inheritance forevermore waiting for me and that cannot be taken away. Do you see why this is so important on those days when this life doesn't make sense, when life seems too hard? You have promises that will last forevermore. Hold on to those things. Hold on to them. So that even in the suffering, even in the difficulty, even when you don't understand, you can still trust more, grow more, and listen, even thrive in him. Thrive in him even when it's hard. Or as Christ told us last week, so remember so that you might have life in him and have it abundantly. Because even in the suffering, you can have an abundant life in Christ. This doesn't mean easy, but that he is enough and knowing that he is enough and what he has guaranteed for you will hold you up 
when it feels like all you can do is fall down and fall apart. That's one. See what I'm saying? We never start with us. We start with Christ. In your, in your Bible study, in your prayer, when you're discouraged. John leaves us a great example. Listen, hear me. This will change your life. Never start with you. Never start with what you're supposed to be doing or how you should be better or whatever else, or even with your suffering. You start with praise and thankfulness and remembering who your Savior is and what He has done, and that will lead you to the right place. Starting with you never leads to the right place. So if we're going to be disciples of Christ that reflect our King, first and foremost, we got to keep our eyes on Him so that He might work in our lives and grow us. And if we're growing, and if God is changing us, and He's changing the way we react to the world, that leads us into my second point of how we can be disciples who make disciples. Church, there's going to be people that you share the truth with that just can't hear it. Right? That, that have trouble believing it, that want to debate about it, that are maybe even a little hostile to it, just like this crowd in John 10. In those situations, first and foremost, John makes this clear, first and foremost, God has to open their hearts and their minds to the truth, right? This is God's work. This is what we pray for. We pray for God, not you don't, you, listen, who do you start with? not you. You pray that God would open their hearts and minds, that God would rescue them, that God, the Holy Spirit, would do the work. Because in the end, that's not only true, but that takes the pressure off you of being good enough, doesn't it? This is God's work. So first and foremost, we start with God. We pray for God. God must to do, has to start and do the work. But for our part, but we can't control all that other than pray, right? We leave that to God. But for our part, when your words aren't enough with someone, do you think you could say to that person, if you can't believe my words, believe my works? Now, I know that nobody in this room would say it that way, right? That seems weird to say it that way. I went, you wouldn't, especially if you said it like a self-righteous Christian, well, if you can't believe my words, believe my works, I'm better than you, right? No, it's not what we're talking about here. That would not go well for anybody. But you, of course, wouldn't say it that way. But what would your life say about who you are in Christ? What would your testimony, the testimony of your life, display about Jesus Christ, about who He is, about the truth of who He is? Would it enrich the conversation? Would it give evidence? Or do you think it could potentially pull, pull away from what you are saying? Would the way you love others, serve others, in love, speak the truth to others. The way you show patience and kindness and humility and gentleness, things that Scripture talks about constantly, would those things necessarily display the truth about who Christ is? Because again, this is not about what it displays about you. It's what it displays about Jesus Christ. For those of you in the room, which I think is maybe all of you today, if you didn't know me 15 years ago, I said this before, I'm going to say it again. I was an extremely sarcastic, opinionated, 
impatient, ungentle person that, if I'm honest, was not really about grace. I believed in grace. I may even said things about grace, but my life did not display that I was about grace. Because here's the thing, I was about truth and I was about justice. And if I thought you were being unfair, if I thought you were being unjust, or I thought you were wrong, my, res- my basic response to that for most people, well, the truth is the truth. So if you don't like it, it's not my fault. That's your problem. This is just true. So you deal with it. I don't have to. That's basically who I was. Now, I could also be nice and generous and, and kind with people at times because none of us are all one thing, right? We all have our strengths and our weaknesses and our personality, but that's who I was. No, I don't think anyone, I, I don't want to try to oversell this, but I don't think anyone who knew me 15 years ago would have said I was gentle or patient or a grace-filled person. I, I don't think anyone would have said that. But church, now I can say with all humility, because I know, I know this is Christ in in me, because the evidence just absolutely proves it. I can say to people in, in one way or another, look at the works of my life. Look at the works of Christ in my life. Because of Christ, my, my life now shows that I, I genuinely strive to love people well. Now, do I do it perfect? No, I don't. of course I don't do it perfect like the rest of it, but I genuinely strive to love people well. I, I genuinely strive to show grace to people who don't deserve it. And by the way, I now want to show grace to people who don't deserve it. Used to it, it was like a white knuckling thing, like I've got to show grace. They're so wrong, but I got to be paid, Right? But no, now I want to. I want to show grace to people who don't show grace to me. I want to love them well through the fact that they're not loving the way Christ is. But maybe I can be an example. Maybe I can help them. Maybe by me showing grace when they don't deserve it, they'll get to see Jesus Christ. I want to do those things. I I now can, at least at times, be really patient with people. And my life displays that that I, I genuinely want to love and serve others, to serve those in need because of what Christ has done for me. Church, man, I'm so imperfect, and you all know this, right? I'm so imperfect. I'm so flawed. I've got lots of, I've got a long way to go. I've got a long way to go. And as I always said, man, I've got a long way to go, but praise, praise God, because I'm not what I should be, but man, I, I am not what I was. I know that for sure. I am not what I was. And so I have confidence I can say to people in a roundabout way, in a relational way, in a way that makes sense to them, hey, like, maybe don't only listen to my words, but look at the unbelievable things Christ has done in my life in the last 15 years because they bear witness about his goodness to those who don't deserve it. And if he could radically change a stubborn, selfish, sinful, harsh guy like me, what does that say about how good our Savior is? Don't just look at my words. Look at the the works of Christ in me and maybe just consider, consider that it might all be true because look at the evidence. Church, this is where your testimony and the saving and changing power of Jesus Christ can bear a tremendous amount of fruit. A tremendous amount of fruit. This is the kind of things that can make people, listen, doubt their doubts. And sometimes that's the best thing that we can do. Love people well enough with our words and our actions that they doubt their doubts. And at least, like as Jesus is trying to do here with the Jews, at least consider maybe the evidence points to the fact that this could be true. So church, I want, to, I want you to consider today, what are the works of your life? 
And do those works point to the truth of who Jesus Christ is and what He can do in you? And if you're, if you're realizing today it's not what it should be, it's not what it could be, could be. Can you do me a favor? No, don't do me a favor. Do what's biblical. Um, do not focus today. Do not leave here focusing today on how you are not good enough. Because that's exactly the way the enemy wants you to view yourself. That's, your, that's the enemy attacking you. You're not good enough. Here's what you do. If you have sin in your life, you repent of that sin. You confess that sin. You confess it to others around you who love you and care about you so that they can help you move past that sin. You take the things in your life that are not holy, where you're not walking in holiness, when you're not walking the way that God would call you to love, and, and you take those things seriously. But you know what else you take seriously? The forgiveness of Jesus Christ. You take seriously the cross and what he had to pay so that you could be forgiven, so that that could be laid at the cross, so that you could move forward. No, don't spend all your time dwelling on how you could, you should be better. No, no, see those things and think about it and pray about it and talk about it so that Christ can help you be more. He died and rose again so that he could help you be more. So that in him, here's the word, so in him you could have life. So many Christians don't have life in church. I want you to have life, a holy, Christ-filled, abundant kingdom, effective life for the sake of his glory and your joy. Joy is found here, church. We don't do it primarily for joy. We do it because our Savior, our God, is so worthy of praise and glory. But our God is so good. He says, I want to give you, by worshiping me, following me, doing this, I'll give you an abundant life. Test me. But we have to be careful about saying, test the Lord. We don't test God. But read Romans 12, 1 and 2. He's saying, like, test to see if this is true. I love you. I adore you. You're my beloved. Follow me. And you just see what I have for you. And listen, whatever it is, wherever you know you need to move, you need to change, you need to grow, take it to him and then move forward. You don't have to pray whether this is God's will or not. It says it right here in, it says right here in scripture, move forward into the upward, upward call of God in your life. Pray that God would help you, but you don't need to pray about his will on this. Move forward in the things he's already called you to and the kind of people he's called you to be so that your life may bear witness about his goodness. Because in the last few verses of the chapter, we read them once, I want you to read them again today. In the last few verses of the chapter, Jesus leaves. And he goes back across the Jordan to the east where John the Baptist did ministry, where Jesus Christ was baptized and that heavens opened up and he said, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. And when Jesus gets there, in this place, they remember his ministry and they remember his words and they remember his works. But you know, do you know who else they remember? By this time, John the Baptist has been killed for his faith. But they remember him. And they remember his words as he prepared the way for Christ. And they remember his works and what God did in him and through him to prepare the way for Christ. How his life declared, his words and actions declared the gospel of the kingdom. And so when Jesus got there and they heard the truth, people were saved because of the words and actions of John the Baptist. When Christ came and shared the gospel, they heard the truth and they believed. Of all the hard-hearted people in this story, we have people that are believing. 
What if your words and your works prepared the way for Christ so when it came time for the, the gospel to land in their hearts and their minds, they would be ready to hear it and they would believe? How can, the, how can you believe the words and the works of Christ more and more so that you might move forward in Him? And how can your words about Christ and the works of Christ in you bear witness to the world about who He is? Church, I hope and I pray that you will consider this today. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, what a gracious King you are. God, you're God. So we should just worship you and honor you and glory because you are God and we are not. Yet you show your people so much grace. God, today I want to thank you more, maybe than anything today, for the testimony of Jesus Christ. That you consecrated your son and sent him to us so that we might know and believe. 66 books in the Bible, four Gospels, and the Gospel of John, all pointing to the truth of who you are. That should be enough. Yet you still sent your Son so that we could know you and believe in you. God, your grace is immeasurable. It's, I almost can't comprehend it. And so God, I pray that it would just pour on us out today and we would know and believe. And that you would use that to grow us and mold us and shape us to be reflections of who you are to a watching world. And they would bear witness about the truth. As when Jesus went across the Jordan back to the east and they saw your words, Jesus, and they saw your works and they saw the works and the words of John the Baptist and they believed, I pray our lives would do the same. That they would bear witness about your goodness, your glory. And that we would get to see people saved. God, we want to be a church that lives as disciples, that make disciples. There's so many distractions in this world that keep us from that, but keep us focused so that, because God, we want to see the world change, our city change, the neighborhood change, people saved for the sake of your name. Be with us in that mission. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Church, I'm going to be standing over there in the corner. I see Corey is over there. If you need prayer for anything, um, if you need to confess anything, talk about anything, pray for anyone. Prayer is such a powerful tool that God has given us. So if you need to pray about anything at all, please come back and talk to us. Otherwise, why don't you stand and we'll sing in worship to God today.